Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. So today I'm talking with Michael Fritzell. He's uh, one of the top financial writers on Substack. Uh, it's called Asian Century Stocks. It features deep dives into unique value stocks throughout the Asian continent. Each write-up also contains a very professional, high-quality PowerPoint deck, which is uh, always a great addition to, to those write-ups. And frequently, these companies fit the mold of extremely high quality and they're at compelling prices, which is exactly what I'm looking for. Um, he's originally from Sweden and previously lived in China. He resides in Singapore. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. So um, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit back about your background? How did you become interested in um, in this particular area of Asian stocks? Sure. Okay. So I'm I'm close to 40 and I've um, been living in Asia for 13, 14 years now. But yeah, originally, to start from the beginning, I'm Swedish, born in Switzerland, grew up in Sweden to Swedish parents. And, and after university in Stockholm, which is the capital of Sweden, I moved to the UK, working for an investment bank for a couple of years. And, um, and after that, during the financial crisis, I made the decision to go to China. And I'd been wanting to do that for a long time. I studied Chinese before that. And I felt that I had gone too fast into the, my professional life. And I felt that I wanted to take a break for a while, just study Chinese. So I went to Beijing and studied at the Peking University studied Chinese. And I loved it. It was fantastic. I stayed pretty much for one year being a student. And then I got a job in Shanghai working for this emerging market fund, specializing, I would say, on China. They had an Asian fund as well, but most of their investments were in China. And that was really my introduction to public markets investing. And it just happened to be, you know, emerging market like China, uh, quite a difficult one. But that was an amazing experience. I spent almost three years covering Chinese stocks and traveling around to meet management team in China. So, and also making, you know, recommendations on, on what the PM should invest in. So, so yeah, that was a um, kind of thrown into the fire. I don't know if that's an expression in English, but yeah, that's what it felt like for sure. After that, I moved to Singapore. I got an offer working for this family office that had a large portfolio in Asia, European family, but they needed someone here. To, to travel around, especially Southeast Asia, countries like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, and so on. So I did that for a few years. I worked for uh, two other funds, fairly vanilla funds, I would say. And my last job before starting the Substack was a as a contract researcher. And um, I felt the, the upside wasn't so great because they didn't have a license in Singapore. So I, did, I couldn't make recommendations. Uh, and I felt that I might as well do something on my own, uh, focusing what I, on what I love. So instead of focusing on the these index weights, which frankly I didn't have much interest in, companies like like Alibaba, Meituan, and so on, on my Substack I've been doing exactly what I'm interested in, and I've been very lucky to find people who are also interested in the same types of stocks, basically value stocks, reasonably high quality value stocks with some kind of catalyst, but um, not necessarily the the fastest growing or you know the the hottest stocks. Uh, I cover stocks that basically nobody else cares about, like cement stocks and, or, or whatever. So that's what I'm passionate about. Yeah, fantastic. And it's great that you found an outlet for that, that you could share it with the world. Substack's great for that. Exactly. I mean, I count myself extremely lucky. And um, this is something that wouldn't be possible before. I think 20 years ago, I would have been forced probably to work for an asset management organization, probably censor myself a little bit. Not to be too contrarian, whereas right now on Twitter, I say whatever I want almost, and I cover exactly the stocks I want that I feel passionate about. And um, it's also another benefit is, of course, if you have some money on your own, you can also manage that money actively. Whereas if you work for a fund manager, they will have restrictions on, on buying and selling. You may not be able to sell quickly. Uh, they might get annoyed if you're buying and selling too many shares. You know, I've had that comment before that I'm trading far too much. So that autonomy, I think, helps. And there's synergies between writing as well as investing. 
so I think it's it's a great setup as long as you can reach the, you know the scale necessary to pay your expenses. Fantastic. So I was really interested in getting your perspective on China because you've lived there and you do so much coverage of the stocks. So my perspective on China is we had this period of time in like the 80s through 2010 where China was opening up and they were expanding freedoms and the economy benefited tremendously. They lifted a lot of people out of extreme poverty. And then over the last 10 years, I guess under Z, it seems like that's all been cr- reversed, like they're becoming much more authoritarian. So I tend to avoid Chinese stocks. So I was curious about what's your perspective on China in that kind of environment? I mean, it's hard. It's been hard for a while, even before uh, Xi became general secretary. You know, you had tons of frauds in overseas markets such as Hong Kong and, and the United States. Private companies, especially these smaller companies, have often uh, had questionable accounting. And that makes it very difficult to make big bets because you just don't know what the what the reality might be. Of course, you can you can rely on companies with strong products and so on, but you could still have overstated earnings or overstated revenues. So there are tons of companies that I personally question. I question the numbers, even though that I know that they are successful successful companies, such as uh, Anta or uh, even Tektronik or you know there are so many of these companies. So it is for sure a very difficult market, and it's become even more difficult now. Uh, I think, and I want to mention a few things that happen. One is that the credit growth, sorry, the credit given to private enterprises used to be the majority, like 70%. The latest numbers I've seen is from 16, 17, and that number came down to about 30%. So, and I think state-owned enterprises, they probably get closer to 80% of all loans now. So the credit goes to state-owned enterprises, and that's going to starve, I think, the private private enterprises over time. I've also seen some exp- examples of forced uh, acquisitions and so on. Uh, so they're in a good position. And I think if you have one person at the top, you know, he's quite powerful, I think, see, and um, obviously he needs to support people and that's costly. So I would imagine that, uh, you know, if it comes to benefiting a private enterprise versus the SOE will typically win. So that makes me a little bit worried about long-term productivity growth, you know, it is a communist economy. Like we've seen that happen before. I think in the case that the Koch brothers worked in Soviet Union in the 30s or 40s, or were they perhaps in building building plants in refineries in Nazi Germany? I forget exactly what the story was, but there was a time when Soviet Union was also open to foreign investors and then they closed again because the party wants to have control. So... I'm quite hesitant longer term, but it, it, we'll see. I mean, he, sees, he has his own way of managing the economy. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what will be the future for entrepreneurship mm-hmm. on a lower level. I know that there's been crackdowns, for example, on the tech sector and so on. Private developers have suffered, the tuition industry and so on. Jack Ma. Uh, <laughs> Jack Ma, it disappeared. I mean, uh, that, that used to be the, the bull case for Alibaba. Great company, by the way. But yeah, these questions, the regulatory questions and the, the political questions are are important. So I'm not sure. What we saw in 2020 is that they introduced these communist party committees, not just in the larger companies, but in practically every private company in China. And these committees, they can fire. They should have the ability to fire the CEOs. So that just makes me wonder, okay, if you are a state-owned enterprise and your competitor is private, will you call somebody to make a CEO be uh, be exchanged? I don't know. I'm just saying like the this gives the party immense power. You as a minority shareholder have really you really you're not even the second in in line. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm a little bit hesitant long term, and I advise everybody to read uh, the Last Kings of Shanghai. An amazing mm. book, and I know that of course the current situation is is quite different from 1949. But it tells, just tells you of how that took place when when the communists took over, mm. how entrepreneurs were kind of taxed until they had nothing left. That's a bit that's a scary story. I frankly I don't know what's going to happen with regards to entrepreneurship. It's possible that companies will continue to do well uh, even with these communist party committees, because for example, Tencent has had a communist party committee for over a decade, and mm. they've done well. Uh, so. It's hard to say. But short term, I'm bullish because you have this end of the zero COVID policy and um, every number is pointing in the right direction. So 
Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting um, thesis about the zero COVID policy ending. So first of all, why do you think they did that? That seems like such a stretch to think we're going to have zero COVID. Like, was that actually their rationale or was there something else at play where they wanted to lock everybody down? Like, it seems irrational. Like, it seems like just a completely irrational goal. <laughs> I think nobody really knows what goes through the head of these key decision makers. <laughs> yeah. don't know. He doesn't talk about his intentions and he's a good poker player. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Even like the only speeches that he's held, he's had pretty much talk about trying to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. The party needs to reassert power over the private sector. So, so, but in terms of the zero COVID policy, I think we don't really know. I'm just wondering why did it ease right after she managed to get a basically lifetime tenure mm. as the leader of the Communist Party. So he cemented his power. Mm. He he got he he stacked the entire Politburo standing committee with his own people. He has no competition in left anymore. So right after that happened, they eased the policy. So <laughs> some people might say that's a coincidence. I think not. Yeah. So it must have been something, some kind of power grab to solidify his control over things. Yeah. I mean, perhaps he he wanted to make sure that everything went according to plan. And having you know a COVID nineteen spreading out of control. Mm. Uh, might have hurt his chances. I'm not sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I just, so you're talking, that's, that's interesting here. You're talking about how he wants to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union. And I guess from his perspective, you had like Glasnost and Perestroika and his perspective is the opening is what led to their decline. I'm not sure if I agree yes. with that. I, I think it, it was it, like 30, 40 years of economic stagnation is probably <laughs> to the collapse, but that was just a catalyst. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, Okay, I, I'm not an expert on the Soviet Union, but I hear from reading Vitaly Katnelson and others mm-hmm. that the introduction of um, foreign videotapes, for example, and um, increased influence by, for example, by importing foreign products, the mm-hmm. eyes a little bit, making people realize that um, that perhaps the um, the country wasn't as as uh, as amazing as as portrayed. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in China right now, most people, most people. Most ordinary people, they support the Communist Party and they support Xi. He's, he's extremely popular among the um, average person, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the elite, the businessmen and the people in tier one, tier one cities, they don't like him. Ah, okay. So it's kind of like a situation like the US where you have people in large cities, like the coastal elites, they would call them <laughs> over here. If, if you're getting parabolic, that's what they would call them. And it sounds like there's a similar dynamic going on in China. I mean... Perhaps, yeah. I think the situation was a little bit different five years ago. And perhaps right now, I hear from people that they don't really like see that mm-hmm. maybe due to, to the lockdowns we saw, for example, in Shanghai. And uh, those are the people that I'm in contact with. So we'll see in the future, perhaps. We'll, we'll see. But but there's also a nationalist sentiment. Mm-hmm. You know, People feel that the country and the people... And the, the government are one of the same. And if you criticize the government, that can lead to almost emotional reaction. Mm. In, so if I criticize something, people will take offense. A lot of mm. people will take offense. And uh, propaganda, it, it, does, it does work. I think so. Yeah, especially when you hammer it into someone's head years and years and years. It's definitely, it's going to have an intense emotional reaction when you contradict that, which is the whole point. <laughs> So are you actually, are you familiar with the work of uh, Peter Zehan in, in China, where he's talking about they're facing this demographic cliff and they're going to face this catastrophe? Like, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, he seems to have really big claims. Mm-hmm. He takes things to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Talks, talking about the collapse of the economy. I think those are, are um, two extreme words. Those words are too extreme. Demographically... You know, we're reaching a level whereby the working age population stopped growing, but it's not going to collapse anytime soon. And mm-hmm. uh, we've seen very similar demographic profiles in developed markets. So I, I don't think that by itself is going to lead to a an, an kind of collapse of any sort. I would think rather what's likely to happen is is just um, if more resources go to the state-owned enterprises, perhaps the return on equity will go down. Mm-hmm. and um, that will be a gradual decline, I think, in probably in the current account, wiki currency, but it will happen very slowly. So um, 
I frankly I don't recall exactly what he said in in the Joe Rogan podca- podcast. But uh, demographics of, are not great, but probably similar to developed markets. And uh, the economy is, is not probably not going to crash, even though it's certainly not as strong as it used to be. Wicked construction activity. I mean, construction is is down. I don't know, forty percent. It's done a lot. Uh, so yeah. So I'd say your long term uncertain but short term very bullish because of the end of the covid zero policy on china yeah exactly uh and and i think it's worth uh, differentiating between different types of companies you have the equity uh-huh. sector which uh, a lot of that is are goods sold to countries like the united states you've had this cash handouts which were largely spent on 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 goods because people were locked down they couldn't spend on services and we're at the tail end of that story Household balance sheets are kind of people are living off their savings, COVID savings. That's not going to last forever. So I think mm-hmm. the, that sector is probably going to suffer, and the property sector is also suffering because the government cut off credits to private developers. They've stopped building, uh, so construction activity is down a lot. State-owned enterprises are buying some of those projects from the private ones, mm-hmm. um, but overall activity is just weak. And then you have this. Third part of the economy, the consumer stocks, consumer companies, which suffered during the zero COVID policy, they're going to do well because people are now going back to restaurants, catering numbers, like restaurant receipts are beautiful. Credit growth is accelerating again. Outbound tourism is coming back, about 40% of pre-COVID. The borders open up in January. I think that's just going to be super positive for, for Hong Kong, for Thailand, and so on. So for the consumer, yeah, if you own consumer stocks in Asia, like I do, I think I'm so bullish, you know, nothing, not necessarily talking about just about Chinese companies, but also other companies in other parts of, of Asia that you sell to China, like Casio, you mentioned Casio, for example. So yeah, we'll get into that. I'm a big fan of the company. <laughs> so another thing I want to talk about, so you've talked about, so that's one aspect of your bullish thesis for Asia. You've also had some predictions that I thought were pretty interesting. So at the end of the year last year, you were talking about how you thought inflation was going to ease and the dollar would weaken, which would really benefit Asian stocks and international stocks as a whole. I mean, one of the things that drove the um, Japanese bubble in the late 80s was the decline of the dollar as a result of the Plaza Accords. So there's just there's definitely this history of weaker dollar leads to very strong international and Asian performance in their stock markets. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about about those predictions and, and how you think that ties into your bull thesis? Sure. I think the um, the reason there was that when the international growth speeds up versus U.S. growth, typically the dollar weakens as long as the economy, as long as we're not in a, in a, in like a deep recession and uh, this just flight to safety. In that case, the dollar could strengthen a little bit, this famous dollar smile. But in other periods, when the global growth, global ex-US growth is stronger, mm-hmm. such as we're seeing right now with the Chinese economy recovering from COVID, just as the US is tightening its monetary policy, perhaps too much, you would expect to see uh, at least a short-term decline in the dollar. I think investors, they seek earnings growth, and that's what you're going to see uh, in Asian consumer stocks, for, for example, but maybe the region as a whole. So that I think that was probably the key thesis. I don't recall exactly what I said. Was it mostly to do with the currency or? Yeah, you mentioned that there would be the currency aspect of it, but that also you thought inflation was going to decline in the United States and that that would result in the changes to the currencies there. So I thought that was a pretty interesting prediction. And it would also make sense because basically in the US, the point of view is that I'm not going to invest in international stocks because they had a bad decade. So it completely makes sense to me that as soon as everybody in the US has given up on international stocks, that a new bull market forms. That's usually how it works. (laughs) That's usually how it works, exactly. I mean, once the dollar weakens big time, then mm-hmm. we'll start to see these flows will have a cycle in for international stocks potentially. But when it comes to like inflation, yeah, people will disagree with me there. And I'm not an expert on, on the US economy at all. But I, yeah. I do think that a lot of the inflation pressures came from the spending we had mm-hmm. for you during COVID. Because if you get money in your pocket, you will spend it. Yes. And uh, <laughs> that leads to inflation. Like higher spending leads to inflation. Uh, especially with the bottlenecks that we had. So uh, now that 
household balance sheets are getting weaker, savings are being drawn down, you will get to a point where, where they will have to stop stop spending. And uh, like this real-time data, like Google search queries for inflation, for example. Mm-hmm. Is down. And I know that myself, there are all these deflationary pressures or disinflationary pressures emerging. So I would imagine, you know, if you increase interest rates to these levels, higher than the normal growth of the of incomes, at some point, I mean, the housing market will weaken. We're seeing that in Australia, Sweden, for example. These housing markets are, are really tumbling. And I think the same probably happening in the US. I don't know. You can tell me more about that. But the Fed is definitely trying to engineer a recession. Housing has weakened a little bit. I think there's not as much pressure on the prices yet because there's really just not much happening in the in the real estate market. I think people who are in a home with a low mortgage are just staying put. And I don't think anybody is really buying. So it's more like there's no activity. So if there's no activity, there's no prices. <laughs> so, um, um, but yeah, it's. But I would imagine eventually it'll have an impact for the job market. I mean, there's all these headlines about layoffs at the big tech companies, but the job market is actually extremely robust. We're at like the lowest unemployment levels in 50 years. So um, the Fed is trying their hardest. It doesn't seem to be having an impact yet, uh, but there usually is kind of a lag with that anyway. Exactly. So it sounds like the question is going to be how fast are they going to pivot? If, mm-hmm. if they pivot today, perhaps there'll be a very mild recession, but the longer they continue, presumably the, the deeper the recession. Yeah. So something else I want to talk about. So I am long Taiwan Semiconductor. So I wanted to talk to you about the prospects for that company, which what you thought about it. Cloud hanging over the company right now is whether or not China will invade. I personally don't think that's going to happen, but I'm curious about your perspective. Yeah, I think uh, someone uh, someone mentioned just a, a few days ago made a great point that the that the Communist Party is, is made up of old men who are really risk averse. Mm-hmm. And that's probably true. Like uh, they don't want to do an amphibious assault, amphibious inf- invasion, if they can avoid it. Because how bloody would that be? Yeah. The easier option is to um, is to go heavy on influence campaigns during the 2024 election, mm-hmm. for example, to try to make sure that the um, that favored individuals, particularly within the KMT party in Taiwan, making sure that they win, and then slowly work through, you know, try to influence the system from, from within. And um, if there is some kind of action, that would certainly happen uh, not now, uh, at least not this year, but um, at least they will certainly wait until after the election 2024. And um, some American defense people, they, they're talking about 2027. And Americans, I mean, their intelligence, your intelligence service are second to none. So if mm-hmm. their prediction is 2027, I, I don't really see a reason to to argue with that. The um, the Chinese so they're building their the military at seven percent per year. That's just going to increase. So I think there's no reason to necessarily do it right now. And if there is some kind of action, it will be a blockade first, and then strong infiltration, and just making sure that there is some kind of compromise, which uh, leads to stronger bargaining power for the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. But okay, for, in terms of TSMC. Yeah, I I really don't think that's should be the main concern. Yeah, I mean to, to talk about that being a Taiwan invasion being like a fifty percent likelihood, I think that's complete nonsense. Maybe it's like five percent. Yeah, in the next few years. I that's guess. kind of where I'm at with it. I think it's I think it's just an excuse because the stock is down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it. If there was a, like an amphibious invasion of Taiwan, mm-hmm. and they, and Japan would then come to Taiwan's rescue, they would be hundreds of thousands of lives lost right basically a, a world war would, would probably break out because japan is so committed to to defending taiwan i think uh, the us is too i, I think the, the us will get involved and they I, have yes exactly so would china have some type of preemptive attack on okinawa on the american military military bases there and what kind of response would that lead to mm-hmm so, I mean, it's just unthinkable to me. So I, I will put that probability perhaps uh, in the single-digit range for the next few years. So it shouldn't be like the at the top of the mind. It's probably more important short-term what's happening to um, to utilization rates, I would mm-hmm. imagine. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess they have customers such as the um, GPU, the uh, crypto, what are they called? The... Um, 
the miners. <laughs> yeah, the money machines, they need chips as well. And then they, they sell, I suppose, uh, smartphone chips and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And that market weakened during China's zero COVID policy. So I'm not I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, longer term, TSMC is just this amazing company. Right. For sure. The, one of the strongest businesses that there are in Asia, there's not much competition. You right. have Samsung has this uh, contract manufacturing arm, which does uh, SOCs as well and, and similar types of chips. But Apple doesn't want to share the IP with, with Samsung. Mm-hmm. So the only independent, this the only independent company that can do this for them is TSMC, uh, at least uh, when it comes to these lower process node uh, levels. So I would think that yeah, TSMC they have this amazing lead in in EUV technology, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So uh, frankly, uh, quite surprised why uh, why Buffett sold. I I don't understand it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm still long. I think it's a great company. I think that the long-term prospects are great. I think that this piece is about the invasion of Taiwan is uh, probably never going to happen because of the consequences are pretty unthinkable. I think uh, semiconductor demand's probably having a tough time right now, but looking long-term, I think I bought it at a pretty compelling price and I'm willing to hold it for five to 10 years. I think it's probably going to work out and it would take the competitors a long time to catch up with it. But yeah, it's Curious about your take as as far as why Buffett sold it. I, I have no idea. I, I don't understand it. I thought I think it's a classic Buffett kind of stock where you have a an amazing company with a moat at a compelling price and good long term prospects. And I don't know. We'll have to see how it how it works out. Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, like yeah, competition wise, I think they're in a in a very very good spot. Like I can't imagine that it's going to work to to build similar fabs in. In the United States, like salaries are so much lower in Taiwan. I've spent a lot of time there, and I can tell you that people work hard in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. TSNC, they have uh, three shifts. They work across, uh, you know, the entire day, twenty-four hours a day, with three shifts in terms of R and D, and they're not paid that much. These even these PhDs. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing company. So moving on to stocks you own, the one I'm most interested in is Casio. I'm a big fan of the product. I have the G-Shock on right now. <laughs> uh, I used to, I actually got into it when I, um, I got sick of wear of uh, smartwatches and charging them all the time. And I really liked the G-Shock brand and how, how well-made the watches are and all the nice little features. So I uh, was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Casio. I love to talk about Casio. I can talk for hours. <laughs> it's yeah. I think you hit the nail on the on the head. The, the fact is that Casio has a unique value proposition in that the watches are, are low maintenance. Mm-hmm. Can, the, the battery lasts for years. They cost very little. Like these uh, fifty six hundred series, it cost, they cost a fraction of of an Apple Watch, and they do the trick. Like they do what you need most of the time. I mean. I know that there are some people who do, who track specific things like like steps and so on when it comes to their need for a smartwatch. But I don't think the smartwatches are as essential as as a phone because mm-hmm. you you need to use your phone to communicate with uh, with with the friends or or um, just call a cab or or whatever. Whereas a smartwatch, there isn't any you know killer feature, and that's why I think that G-Shocks will will, will continue to be around. And I think you know the I think the quality control is is really special. Uh, people don't give them enough credit for that. They use these mm-hmm. computer systems to analyze each watch that they're testing to make sure that it's it's perfect. And they're working in these clean room environments where there's basically no dust to make sure that the quality control is is uh, it's really tight. And you don't get that even for a five hundred dollar, even a thousand dollar Seiko watch. Right. Is, is awful, uh, whereas Casio's uh, is truly excellent for the price. And uh, I think all they need to do, they have this advantage, all they need to do is make a little bit more fashionable watches that appeals to, men, to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that maybe since 2019, with these new Casio models that perhaps moving in that direction, there's been an organizational shift with a new uh, CEO, mm-hmm. Casio, Casio, and he's um, at least he's he stepped up in 2018 pretty much. And since then we have seen, uh, I think some changes to the positive 
not all, I guess, but so so that was pretty much the um, about the long term potential of Casio. So the the watches are amazing. The, the question is just can you produce something that appeals to the mainstream? And if they can, I think you can, you know, these watches can sell a lot more. They sell about 10 million currently. They can sell 20, 30. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. I, I mean, I um, there's some great videos on YouTube where people do things like they'll boil their G-Shock and it works. They'll stick it in the freezer and it works. Um, I like it because I can just bang it up and I can go outside and do yard work or whatever. And I know it, it will be fine. So it's extremely well made. It's almost amazing. I think um, the G-Shock can go down to something like 600 feet underwater. I don't know of any other watch that has that kind of uh, that kind of ability to withstand extreme, <laughs> extreme environments. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's there's uh, I love these products when you ask, you know, what's the alternative and, and people can like come up with a good, good mm-hmm. answer. Maybe uh, the Apple Watch Ultra. But that one costs uh, 800 USD and in the rest of the world, closer to maybe 1,000. So that's 10 times more. And you have to charge it every night and you forget to do it. It doesn't work, (laughs) which is the most annoying thing. Exactly. Uh, So, yeah, exactly. I think all that needs to happen is good designs and new product introductions. Yeah. And continue with that quality control and they will do quite well. And then... I should also mention there were two other parts of the thesis or I guess positive points about the Casio. One was the depreciation of the Japanese yen. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a violent depreciation from, I don't know, 110 yen to the dollar to 150. Mm-hmm. Now it's back to 130 something, 132. I forget exactly what the number is today. But um, um, that depreciation should benefit company, especially depreciation against the euro because they have a large portion of their property plant and equipment in Japan. So they could, I mean, the components that are produced in Japan can be produced a lot cheaper. So they will either benefit through higher prices, you know, mm-hmm. in the end terms, or they benefit by being able to shift production to cheaper, you know, having basically a cheaper cost in Japan, high quality, presumably. So one way or another, they, sh- they should benefit. And we haven't quite seen that, and it's not so clear why, but... That takes me to the second leg of the thesis is mm-hmm. that China, China sales was down about 35% in the last quarter, if I remember correctly. And um, that was due to weak food traffic, people staying inside, you know, 250 million people locked up at home. Obviously, sales is going to decrease. So the end of the zero COVID policy has happened. And I think we should see a recovery for sure. So exactly how well the Casio turns out, uh, we'll see. But I'm certainly. You know, I own, you know, big, big allocation to Casio. And, and at least in the near term, I'm hoping that they will see some positive news out of China or Wikian. Interesting. Yeah. And I also wonder if it could, if they, with new designs, they could possibly catch on a little bit more in the U.S. Because in the U.S., it's kind of perceived as like a 1980s watch. And um, it kind of reminds me of the way Ray-Bans were perceived like 25 years ago, where that was, people were more into Oakley's and things like that. And then Ray-Ban introduced some new designs and suddenly Ray-Ban was cool again. I think Casio could probably do the same thing considering how well engineered the watches are. If they could just adjust the style a little bit, um, they could probably become cool again and catch on. So, Have you seen the uh, Casio Oaks? Yeah, very nice. Very nice watches, yeah. Not bad, right? And they have yeah. this, the metal versions as well. Like, um, I'm thinking that if you search, if you look at Google Trends, the Google search queries for, for Casio, they're going up steadily. Mm-hmm. And also for Casio watches going up steadily. And I think that's interesting. And they're selling really well in countries like France, mm-hmm. which are very fashion-sensitive people, if I have to generalize. But for sure, they tend to care more about their appearances than, mm-hmm. let's say, the UK. I'm generalizing a little bit, but the Casio is really popular in France. Yeah. So I'm thinking that... They're onto something here. And uh, the same designer could well come up with future innovations. There are things happening. They're trying with the smartwatches. It's, they're not perfect. You, you kind of have to charge them you know, every, every other week or so. But, um, but yeah, hopefully they get it right. Yeah, with the smartwatches, their big competitor is probably Garmin, I would say. Garmin has the instinct watches. But I think they could probably make a, a really solid competitor to that if they really put their mind to it. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, in April, they just released this watch that looks very similar to yours. It has this MIP display, memory in pixel display, uh, which has really high contrast ratios. You can see them from every angle. And they also have certain, they have a sensor on the back, which, which measures the heartbeat, track steps and so on. It has some downsides as well. You have to charge them uh, a little bit. I don't know. I don't recall exactly how often, perhaps every other week or so. Well, that's fantastic uh, compared to most of the smartwatches, which is every night. So that's a good good outcome, I think. <laughs> right. Hoping for the best. They're, they, I mean, they released the first smartwatch, I think, two years ago. So they're a little bit behind. The software that is, is so-so. So we'll see. But let's remember, I mean, this is early days for them. So mm-hmm. let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Cool. All right. So um, let's move on to another company I thought was pretty interesting. So I'm probably going to butcher these pronunciations, so forgive me there. But uh, one I thought was pretty interesting was Hardalega. So um, they manufactured disposable gloves. So I would think disposable gloves is kind of a commodity industry. But reading your write-up, they command very strong returns on capital. They they've have some solid growth prospects. Um, so I'd, I'd like to hear your take on that company. Sure. I actually received a lot of uh, pushback. Mm-hmm. People don't like uh, hearing about uh, the industry right now, which is interesting because when I first looked at the plastic glove industry in, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, Hartelega was was the blue chip company to look mm. at. And Looking at the return on, cap, on on equity, I mean, at that time it was thirty percent, but even twenty nineteen it was about twenty percent. It's and it's grown like their their earnings have grown really nicely, seventeen percent per year over the past decade. So that's uh, not something to sneeze at. Sorry, that's pre-COVID, by the way. But yeah, over a decade, about seventeen percent. The the I think the fact is there are many players in this industry, and uh, Hatalega is. It, I think it has this operational excellence. In terms of automation, mm-hmm. they have all of their machinery is, is produced by themselves, which is something you see with other high quality companies like uh, Largan and so on in, in Taiwan. Like c- companies that produce their own machinery have a little bit of moat, and I think the quality control is is also automated and decent. And if a company has a, a brand name and strong customer relationship. They, they can probably take out a little bit extra in terms of the, the prices. So just for reference, one glove costs about two cents, US dollar cents, mm-hmm. one piece, which is not that much for a hospital or let's say, you know, let's say a chemicals company. You're dealing with a hazardous chemical that will kill or, or you know, be, be, um, be hazardous to, to the people using the glove. Of course, they will be willing to pay 3% extra for a high quality glove. So I think, that's part of the reason why they've had this decent return on equity. It's not every company in the sector. Uh, it's mostly the top companies like Top Glove and Hatalega. So that's really uh, the key part of it. And the unlisted ones are, are even worse. So they, there's a huge tale of these uh, less efficient Malaysian glove manufacturers. Mm. So that's the reason I think that, they've, that Hatalega has had a good return on equity at least pre-COVID. Well, during COVID, it had even better because of COVID demand. But now it's back to, you know, an oversupply and, and, and weak profits. I think the industry is super, super interesting because there's been growth in usage. Mm-hmm. There's the penetration rates for rubber gloves, disposable rubber gloves. Emerging markets are tiny, like 5% of the total in developed markets. Oh, wow. So you could have growth for many, many decades. We talk about secular growth you know, across the cycle. I think when we're getting to a downturn like we are in right now, people just look at the recent the recent numbers and it doesn't look like it's a growth company. Uh, and why would you pay 10 P, 10 normalized basis for this kind of company? But you gotta, you gotta remember, you know, historically it traded at 22 times or even 30 times pre, pre-COVID. So that's really the, um, the, uh, the long-term bull case. So I think this is a stock that I've been wanting to own since forever, you know, for a decade. And now, or perhaps not now today, but around, you know, in the next year, perhaps it might be the time to uh, to invest. That's my personal opinion. I'm not advising you to invest, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I look at the same thing. I look for companies where they have solid track records. They're a little beaten up 
and then buy them. So it seems like that's that's a pretty good candidate that I should probably look into. I think so. I mean, it's, it's Malaysia listed, and I don't know a lot of people don't have access to Malaysian stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's certainly very niche. Uh, it's a company nobody has heard of in the industry. Nobody has analyzed in the country. Nobody has probably probably visited. But yeah, I think if if you do have access to it, uh, it's certainly uh, one of the more blue chips when it comes to Malaysian stocks. I want to do one warning though: is that the end of China's zero COVID policy? Mm-hmm. It's possible that we're going to see. A slight decrease in demand, sure. I think, uh, with testing going down, and perhaps that might impact the average selling prices in the really short term, talking mm-hmm. about monthly or quarterly basis. But if you take this really long term view, yeah, right, uh, this company would grow. Okay, awesome. Another one I thought was very interesting was Thai Beverage. So they make alcoholic beverages in the U.S. Um, alcoholic beverage companies tend to be extremely expensive. This one's pretty reasonable valuation. So I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that company. Yeah, I think um, the the simple case is it's a monopoly, mm-hmm. pretty much monopoly in the in the liquor segment, white and brown liquor. That is uh, rum for molasses as well as whiskey, and their liquor uh, it's kind of a monopoly. They have ninety percent market share. Which is ridiculous, uh, and the monopoly comes from uh, government regulation and laws. Uh, a lot of lobbying probably went into making that happen. It's impossible for a foreign company to set up a distillery and compete in Thailand. So it is very much a uh, regulated monopoly. So um, as long as that continues to be the case, they will continue to earn these really great uh, returns on capital and and. Um, you know, they, they can raise prices. The fact is that these, they don't cost much, these liquors. And I forget exactly how much it is for a bottle, but we, we're talking about, I think it was like $2 or something like that for, for a bottle. Let me check. Wow. In any case, they're ext- extremely cheap. And that explains why they're so popular among the, you know, typical Thai people. And the bull case is really that they had a tough time uh, during mm-hmm. COVID because of a lack of tourism. Um, I think, Thailand's uh, tourist arrivals are now back to 50%. That will help the beer business. Uh, they sell beer under the Chang brand name. And uh, yeah, if you go to Thailand as a tourist, if you order a beer, most likely it will be a Chang beer. Um, mm. So that's kind of the growth segment. They also have a um, Vietnamese uh, beer company called Sabeco. They paid a bit too much for it, frankly, but that's just a, a market that's, that's uh, developing really fast as well. So exposure-wise, it's, it's, it's amazing. And yeah, I, I personally like um, like beer. So I think this is for sure one of the stocks that's at PE. I forget exactly what the PE is, but maybe it's 16 or something like that. Yeah, you said it was 16. So it's a pretty reasonable valuation for a monopoly and a brand that's well-known and with growth with growth, profit, growth prospects. Yes, exactly. It is one of the multi-year companies in Thailand and the cheapest one. If you look at like a global peer group, I don't mm-hmm. think you find anything cheaper, except perhaps Multi Bintang in Indonesia or some some African beer company, perhaps. But other than that, those, I think it is it is it's a very cheap company. Cool. And the other one I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, this is a bigger company is Sony. So you were talking about how we're pretty early in the console cycle for the PS5. You've got a pretty moody company. They've recently cut costs, which just helped out their margin, their margins. Um, so tell me a little bit about Sony. Yeah. I mean, I love Sony. I think it's a, it's a, it's one of the most well, best managed companies in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they, they are excelling across so many business areas. It is quite spectacular. I think mm-hmm. I just, yeah, just to recap, they have the PlayStation franchise with the PlayStation 5 just well, came out to the 2020, but is only now, last late last year, wrapping up its production and sales. They have a image sensor segment, which has about 50% market share for, for smartphones. And Apple buys their image sensors from Sony. They are like, if you want, if you buy a high-end smartphone, the image sensor is from Sony. And that's, those prices are going up. They're getting more expensive, those components. Uh, they have a picture segment, Sony Pictures, which I think used to be Columbia Pictures. It, that that's kind of the pillar for that for that studio. Yeah, uh, they acquired it in the 1980s, I, th- I think. And um, 
they is is performing really well with the Spider-Man franchise and and a whole host of quite successful movies. Uh, so that should do pretty well, I think. I mean, they're they're selling to to the online streaming platforms. That revenue, you know, perhaps will go down a little bit with the venture capital boom being over. But that's not a major issue. On the other hand, they're going to benefit from the cinema rebound that we're going to see in 2023. Mm. The box office lineup we saw with Nintendo. I mean, people are back in cinemas. And then music segments is, 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 they have a fantastic music library. And what else did I miss? Consumer electronics. They sell cameras for content creators. That's doing quite well. And the underperforming segments like the computers, they've sold off. Um, so it's overall, it's a well-managed company. The, um, but the, the key thing to look at, I think, the key delta in the earnings are going to be PlayStation 5. And, uh, when it comes to video game companies, especially console ones, you want to look at the the cycle. And, and personally, I think that the uh, that the uh, for example Nintendo cycle is probably heading down, has been he- heading down in le- last year at least. That could change. I mean, with the new um, new consoles and or more games or so. But I thought when I invested that Sony's console cycle was much better because they introduced the PlayStation Five in in twenty twenty. In December, I think November, and but the production was weak because of chip shortages during COVID, and those eased in roughly in the third quarter of 2022, about half a year ago. And since then, we've seen an explosion in production and sales of the PlayStation 5. And what we've seen historically is that you you see a peak of hardware sales uh, at some points. Right now, for example, we're we're seeing that the PlayStation 5 is actually exceeding PlayStation 4 sales. Wow! Um, so, so it's going to be a better one better cycle in terms of hardware sales. And then when it comes to software, that sales peaks about one year after the cons- the hardware peaks. So I think we're right about now, we're seeing the hardware, the peak in hardware sales. So 2024 would be the peak in earnings because mm. software is really what's, what's going to gr- drive earnings for Sony. So we're in this beautiful spot whereby earnings are going to accelerate. And the, the stock price has performed a little bit better recently, but still, you know, we're in the sweet spot, I think. So I'm really excited about Sony, even though it's like it's like P15. It's not amazing compared to most of the stocks I look at. Right. Um, but but in terms of the like the catalyst, we're talking really short-term catalyst here. Um, it's a solid Modi kind of company. So and it's very solid, it's very liquid, large. And I should also mention that. It's not just about the console cycle. There's also this online growth whereby mm-hmm. people spend more games on games online rather than uh, physical games. And that leads to higher margins. Mm. So like That's why Sony's earnings have gone up actually since the last 10 years so much. It's because of this digitalization trend of, of video games. And so yeah, we have... Yeah. yeah, you mentioned that. I thought that was super interesting. So how video games are becoming more... Uh, the the structure of it is changing where video games are now a toll road you called it i thought that was was really fascinating it's a platform like they it's almost like apple's app store and sony sells games via their own app stores and they take a cut from that and they also they're a major publisher of games as well so they benefit from much higher margins and the the digitalization rates i don't know if it's like 75 percent somewhere around there Mm -hmm. so it can probably go up to 100 percent and uh People will, you know, in the past, people used to buy used games from from game. What's it called? Game. GameStop. GameStop, exactly. Very dramatic stock in the United States. <laughs> but now they're not doing that anymore. So if you right. cannot buy used, you have to buy new. You don't have to pay for all the expenses related to, uh, you know, manufacturing the the actual disc and so on. So that's it. I mean, the same the, the same is true for Nintendo. But Nintendo is a little bit of a strange company in terms of they they do things differently. Mm-hmm. Whereas the likelihood of 100% digitalization for Sony is quite high. Hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. So, um, so this is a great conversation. Are, are there any other sh- stocks that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? I think there are so many. I mean, I can I can talk <laughs> stuff for, forever. But I think like you know, top-down view, my focus right now, or what I feel most strongly about is really anything to do with uh, the Chinese consumer recovery. Hmm. And, and tourism and yeah anything to do with with those stories so for example you know the hong kong restaurant operators 
Café de Corral and Fairwood, perhaps a little bit niche. I think they're really strong. And uh, the COVID restrictions have all eased. It's just such a, such a great timing-wise moment because the stocks have come down since the initial enthusiasm back in, I think the zero COVID policy was eased in November. Stocks went up until January and now they're back, you know, they've come back quite a bit down again. Whereas the fundamentals are just fantastic mm. uh, for, for example, for the restaurants. There's another stock called Neo Technologies, which is more speculative. <laughs> to be fair, very speculative uh, in terms of uh, what they do. They produce electric scooters, lithium okay. cars. It used to be this uh, high-flying concept stock, but they do they produce really well-designed vehicles, which I think is favored. It's kind of aligned with the party, what the party wants to see, electrification. But for some reason, this stock trades 0.3 times sales. It used to have margins of six, uh, sorry, I think seven, eight percent probably operating margins. So, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me personally. Mm. And they suffered during 2022 due to weak foot traffic to their stores in China, but it's sort of open again. I can't imagine anything else than a really positive year for them. So that's those are the types of stocks that I'm interested in. Consumer stocks, China or tourism stocks overseas, like uh like beer producers in Indonesia and so so very cool yeah it seems like there's definitely a lot of moats on sale over there and then in addition to that you have the, this nice uh macro trend where the with the end of the covid zero policy so it's a very it seems like a very exciting time for for these stocks yeah i mean this is um this is what you would want to do typically i mean i'm just talking for myself right now ideally you will want to own high quality companies. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. most of the time they're trading at pretty high multiples. So right. you kind of have to wait until some kind of dislocation. Uh, and China is a tricky market to invest in, accounting, politics, and so on. But you can invest in Hong Kong. Hong Kong still has quite a strong rule of law. Uh, mm. At least you, you can trust the numbers. Uh, you, or you can invest in Thailand or Indonesia, which also benefit from tourism. Or like retailers like Muji, for example, which has exposure to China. So um, there, are, there are different ways, there are different opportunities we can benefit from, from this broad trend without necessarily risking all your capital in, in, the, in the Chinese risky stocks. Um, so what is the best place for people to find out more about you? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I run a substack, asiancenturystocks.com. That is the URL. You can also find me on Twitter. Fritz eight four four is my handle. So yeah, I guess just contact me there. I guess. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.